Good morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we uh, come to you now and we uh, just want to seek your face, Lord. We want to hear from you. We want to sit in your presence and hear you teach. So Lord, as we open your word, as we sit at your feet, would you teach us? Would you teach us uh, truth, Lord? Difficult truth at times. But we want to hear it. As we open up this portion of Luke today, Father, it will be hard to hear, but it will be good to hear. And we pray that the message of this portion of your word would go out to many that they may be warned of the things that are yet to come we pray in Jesus name amen turn your Bible to Luke chapter 17 I've also provided you uh, just a printout there of the, the text today if you'd like to follow along Luke chapter 17 beginning in verse 20 a rather lengthy portion today, <clears throat> but we're going to go through it as, uh, and, and, uh, and take it verse by verse. Would you stand with me as we read from Luke 17, beginning in verse 20? Luke 17, let's all stand. Beginning in verse 20 as we carry on our series in the Gospel of Luke. Now when he, that is Jesus, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you or in your midst. Verse 22, Then he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them. Or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer, suffer many things, and be rejected by his generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom... It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill together. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? 
So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles or the vultures will be gathered together. You may be seated. What a portion of the word. A difficult portion. Some of you might be reading this and going, wow, what's going on here? Let's take it apart verse by verse. Let's have a good study together. Verse 20, again, and 21. Now when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or is in your midst. The Pharisees' expectation of the kingdom of God, what was it? What did the Pharisees anticipate the kingdom of God would be like? Well, for those of you who uh, have studied with us through the Gospel of Luke, you've, you've come to learn their expectation. You've come to learn what the Pharisees were anticipating. They were anticipating a militaristic Messiah. They were anticipating a political ruler. A giant from the Jewish people to come to quash Rome and Caesar and to establish Jerusalem again as the capital of the world. They wanted a Messiah to overthrow Rome and have a dash of spiritual renewal too. But they were way more focused on the military and on the political ends. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come and what circumstances would lead up to that day, well, Jesus, he knew that uh, he shared very little in common with their expectations. They wanted power. Jesus came in weakness and the shame of the cross. They wanted military might. Jesus wanted hearts that were humble and moldable before God. So Jesus responds to their question about the coming of the kingdom, and he says, in effect, you won't be able to see it coming. You won't be able to see it coming. Because the kingdom that you're looking for, (laughs) it's not there. It doesn't come with observation, especially to those who misperceive the purpose of the kingdom Many of your cronies out there will say, oh, it's right over here, or look, it's right over there. But they will all be wrong, for they're looking for the wrong thing. They're looking for greatness. They're looking for a mighty and militant Messiah. Jesus says, you won't observe the things that you're looking for, Pharisees. I tell you that the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your midst. It's here right now. In your midst, it's happening already within human hearts who receive the remission of sins and who are born again by faith in me, Jesus says. Today, I don't think we, uh, I don't think we quite share the Pharisees' craving uh, for a militaristic and political kind of, of Messiah Many of us don't share that kind of a a craving for a final manifestation of the kingdom um, in in that way that the Pharisees did. 
Yet still, many of us are looking so much forward, as the Pharisees were, so much to the future for the kingdom, for the end of the age, for the return of Messiah, that we lose sight of the fact that Jesus has just said the kingdom is already right now. It's already in your midst. It's already within you. If you would but see it. The kingdom is happening now in our hearts. Let us not lose sight of that. Rejoice in what God is doing in you now. Pray, ask, dream big of what Jesus can do in you. Jesus said to his disciples, greater things will you do than even me, he said. Appropriate his power as you live now. Let him fill you with the fruit of the Spirit. Let light, his light, shine in on places of your life that is dark and sinful. The things that entangle you, he can set you free now. The kingdom of God is within you, amen? Why do we always have this, uh, this feeling that, oh, I'm, I'm defeated. I can't beat it. I can't win. No. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Spirit of God within you can do anything. He's God. He can do anything. He can overcome anything. He can heal anything. Don't shortchange Him. Don't let your life merely be a kind of stalling, a kind of just waiting it out. A defeatist mentality that just kind of bemoans sin and injustice and supposes that nothing will be resolved until Jesus returns. Jesus can do things now. The kingdom of God is within you. It's in your midst. Make the most of it. The Pharisees, they they were stalling. They were waiting around for Messiah to show up, the political, the militant Messiah. Jesus says, you'll be waiting a long time. Your version of the kingdom is keeping you from your full potential in the Lord. And it wasn't just the Pharisees that had misconceptions about the end of the age. The disciples had some misconceptions too. Take a look at verse 22. Jesus addresses them. Verse 22, he says, then he turned to his disciples. He said to his disciples, verse 22, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Jesus says, even you, my disciples, even you should know that although you desire and expect to see the end of the age in your lifetime, the full manifestation of the kingdom in your lifetime, I'm here to tell you, you won't even see it until it's fully completed. You won't even see it in your own lifetime until it's finished. The disciples were always trying to hasten the end. Jesus slows them down. He wants them not to be so preoccupied with the end that they lose sight of what God is doing now. At the same time, Jesus does want his disciples to have a healthy understanding of the kingdom, of what the end will look like. 
And so while he slows them down, he slows his disciples down, says, you're not going to see, you're not going to be around for the end. Even you will not see the day of the Son of Man, the days of the Son of Man. He slows them down and he turns to the, the Pharisees and he slows them down and says, your view of the kingdom, it is, it is not coming in the way that you expect it. He's slowing everybody down. And then at the same time, he wants these people. He wants his disciples. He wants the Pharisees to come to a real understanding, a healthy understanding. And have a healthy expectation, a biblical expectation of what the end will look like. And so beginning in verse 23, starting in 23 and going to the end of the chapter now, Jesus gives some guidelines on how to develop a proper understanding of the end of the age. And I do want to draw attention before we we get to those guidelines. I want to draw attention to the fact that he does use the plural there in verse 22. Notice how it says he said to his disciples, the days will come when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Usually you see the day of the Lord or the, the day of Christ Jesus. Usually, almost always actually in Scripture, it's in the singular. But Luke here Hearing, uh, uh, carefully copying down Jesus' teaching, Luke here notes that Jesus uses the plural. You'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. I think this is significant. Typically, again, we see this word in the plural, the day of the Lord or the day of Christ Jesus. But I do think it's significant that it's in the plural here. For Jesus will, will go on to describe various aspects of his second coming in the coming verses. And as we know, the second coming of Christ encompasses a great many things. It can encompass things like the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. It can encompass things that, uh, um, that span the, the, the time of the tri- tribulation and of the great tribulation. And it can also refer to the final coming of Christ, the battle of Armageddon, where Jesus defeats the Antichrist and all of his minions. And so when we refer to the second coming, when we refer to the end of the age, while often in scripture it's mentioned as the day of the Lord, as a singular day, but here it's unique in Luke that he mentions the days of the Son son of Man. Because it will be a very uh, varied and manifold development, a progressive development of his coming. As we read verses 23 to the end of the chapter, we will see the varieties And the different elements of that coming. So let's dig in now to Jesus' advice on what to look for and how to respond to the vagaries of the end of the age. His first warning. And by the way, that's, uh, I didn't mention that. The title of this message, Jesus' warnings about the end of the age. His first warning comes in verse 23 and it pertains to deceivers and opportunists. Look what it says in verse 23. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Do not go after them or follow them, Jesus says. Every generation, every generation since the time of Jesus has experienced verse 23. There rises up a person or a group of people who claim to have figured it out. They claim that they've figured out who the Messiah is. Sometimes it's someone from their own group, right? 
They rise up and they say, we figured it out. We know what the end looks like. Here's the Messiah. Here's the circumstances. Here's what's going to happen. Every generation has experienced these people, these groups. Jesus says quite plainly, anyone who claims to have figured out the timing and the precise nature of Messiah's return, they're fooling you. So be careful. They'll say, look here, look there. Look at this. Inevitably, their predictions about the end will always come with lots of secret and cryptic information, insider knowledge that you have to gain in order to be a part of the group or to get the insider scoop and knowledge on how it's going to unfold. But Jesus tells his disciples that when the end comes, there will be nothing cryptic about it. When the end comes, everyone will assuredly know it has arrived, for it will be as visible as lightning. Look at verse 24. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. To be sure, lightning is unpredictable. Lightning is completely unpredictable. We never know where it will flash. We never know when it will flash. So also the scriptures indicate that Jesus will return at an hour we do not expect. But when he comes, when he comes, when the end of the age is upon us, it will also be like lightning. Jesus' presence upon the earth will be seen from all corners of the globe, just as lightning can be seen from remarkable distances. Well, that brings up an interesting point there because, uh, of course, we're talking about the days of the Son of Man. Remember the plural. And so we might be asking ourselves, which element is Jesus referring to here? Which element of his second coming when he speaks of lightning being seen by everyone on the globe from all parts, all corners of it, which element of the last days might Jesus be referring to here? Would he be referring to the rapture, which is often referred to as um, maybe the secret rapture or something that uh, happens and all of a sudden only Christians are aware of it and see it and are raptured up and taken up to be with the Lord forever? Or might this be referring more precisely to the final coming of Christ at the end of the age for the final battle? I tend to believe it refers more to the latter elements of the second coming. At this point, the disciples, and even likely the Pharisees, were listening in still. They all, they all like what they just heard. Yes, the Messiah is coming. Yes, it will be like lightning. It will be powerful. It will be visible to all. But once again, Jesus repositions their perspective on the timing of the end. Verse 25, he says, But first, he, Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before Jesus comes in glory, he must first suffer and die on the cross. That was not in keeping with anyone's expectations. Certainly not the Pharisees. So right after Jesus speaks of the lightning 
the flash before all. All will see him. Jesus mitigates it yet again and says, but wait, first comes the weakness. Weakness before glory. This idea completely continues, uh, continues to completely disrupt the Jewish expectation. Jesus always disrupts the status quo, which is ironically the subject of his next warning. Look at verse 26 to 29, disrupting the status quo yet again. He says this, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Status quo. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. At the onset of our study today, the Pharisees were asking Jesus, what to look for as the kingdom approached. They were expecting military and political power. Here in verse 26 through 29, Jesus says that his second coming and the judgment that follows will be preceded by a time of normalcy. Status quo. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, it'll be a time where people say, peace and safety. Peace and safety. Everything's great. Oh, the world is just well. The economy's wonderful. I'm so happy. I can eat. I can drink. I have relationships. I can make plans. I can do business. Thriving. Life is good. Life will appear not just normal. Life will appear, have an appearance of, wow, this is great. Before the coming of the end. Peace and safety. It'll be no different than how people conducted their lives during the days of Noah and Lot. But then... Jesus will suddenly come and disrupt the status quo. Like the flood of Noah or the fire and brimstone that rained down on Sodom, so also Jesus will suddenly bring about the time of the end and destruction will await all who are not prepared. In the story of Lot, in Genesis 19, were you to go back and read it, in the story of Lot, they had to sprint, they had to run. Run away to avoid certain death. And so Jesus teaches also that when he comes again, those who wish to survive, they'll need to run. Look at verse 30. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take away the goods. 
And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back and return to his house for his goods. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Whoever seeks to save his life, that is to say, whoever seeks to go back for his earthly goods in his home, he'll lose his life. Remember Lot's wife. She stopped. She looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah. And she died. Turned to a pillar of salt. But the one who forsakes his home, the one who forsakes her possessions, the one who loses all of their livelihood and runs, that person will be preserved. You might be thinking, wait a minute, uh, Neil. That's that's not my understanding of how it's going to unfold in the end. What is Jesus talking about here? I mean, isn't it the case, Neil, that when Jesus returns, those of us who are believers in him will be raptured, will be taken up to heaven to live with the Lord forever. What's all this talk about running? I'm a little scared of this. I'm a little unsure of what he's talking about. I thought that I would be raptured and taken up and, and protected, running for, our, my, for my life. Jesus, what are you talking about? Yes, it is true. Christians will be raptured. First Thessalonians chapter 4. At the trumpet sound, we will be taken up to be with the Lord forever. And thus we will always live with Him. Amen? The rapture is true. The rapture is taught in the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 4 is just one such text that we can appeal to. There are many, many others. Christians, you will be kept from the day of wrath. But this gives us a big clue then. As to the kind of people Jesus is warning in Luke 17. Because if the rapture is true, we can say that, we can say at least one thing about the people to whom Jesus tells to run. And that is we can say that at the time of the rapture, they're not Christians. The people to whom Jesus is warning in Luke 17, at the time of the rapture of the church, we can be sure that Jesus' warning in Luke 17 is referring to people who were not believers at the time of the return of Christ. Jesus doesn't need to warn believers to run, for they will be flying up to meet him in the clouds. Who is Jesus then referring to? Well, if we consider his audience, we might get closer to the answer. Remember verse 20, he mentions the Pharisees. In verse 22, he mentions the disciples. Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's speaking to some believing disciples, no doubt, no doubt, but also to many other Jews, unbelieving Pharisees, and no doubt many other Jews who had gathered to hear his teaching. And Jesus knows 
that such teaching will be preserved and passed down to us in the form of his word. Jesus is warning the Jewish nation, particularly those Jews who do not believe that Jesus is Messiah, that when the end comes, the Jewish people will experience a kind of persecution that can be likened to the flood of Noah or the fire and brimstone that rained down during the time of Lot. Jesus is warning his countrymen that when the end comes, your wisest course of action will be to run for your lives. Hmm. We've seen glimpses of this, actually, in human history. During World War II, there were stories of heroic, heroic families in Western Europe. They would, uh, they saw what was happening. They saw what Hitler and the Nazis were doing. And they knew the Germans were coming. And so the people, many uh, heroic families throughout Western Europe, they would, they would take in their, their Jewish neighbors. And they would hide them in their homes. They would hide them and they would, uh, because they couldn't be out and seen <laughs> in public, as the war raged on, the Nazis were relentless in scouring cities, towns, and villages in search for Jews. They entered homes, the Nazis did, all across Western Europe, hunting them down like animals. And when they happened upon a home where Jews were hiding, they would enter in, they would forcibly remove the Jewish men, women, and children, and they would leave behind the non-Jewish residents who had been hiding them. They would take away the Jews and they would leave behind the non-Jews. That's precisely how Jesus describes the coming persecution of his Jewish countrymen at the end of the age. Look at verse 34. I tell you that in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken the other will be left. There will be two women grinding together in the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? Where? And he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles or the vultures will be gathered together. At the end of the age, Jesus' advice, his advice, for unbelieving Jewish countrymen is that they should run. Why? Because if they do not, they will experience sudden and catastrophic destruction, akin to what the Jews of World War II experienced not even a generation ago from us, only worse. Now many interpreters of verses 34 to 37, they simply spiritualize this. They spiritualize this portion of Luke. They laugh and mock at such an interpretation as the one I am giving you, despite the fact that it's happened in human history already. They over-spiritualize it. They say, well, we need to speak more gen generically. They claim that it is merely, that Jesus is merely speaking in generalities about how believers and unbelievers will be separated once and for all at the return of Christ. 
Yes, that's true. Believers and unbelievers will be separated at the return of Christ. But I believe believe it's not only possible, I think it's extremely probable that Jesus is speaking very particularly about the nature of the last days. He's speaking very particularly about his countrymen who will enter the tribulation period after the rapture of Christians. In that day, verse 37, wherever the body is, that is to say, wherever a Jewish person is, there the eagles or the vultures will be gathered. In Greek, the word etoi was the same word used for both eagle and vulture. It's in the plural. It could be used for either, either bird. Interpreters do their best to study the context to determine which bird is in view. It can be either one. Some of your Bibles have vultures. Some of your Bibles have eagle. There's a case, a case can be made for either interpretation. On the other hand, I think that Luke's choice of this word, as he carefully passes down the teaching of Christ, Luke's choice of this word may also imply a double entendre of sorts. For at the time of Jesus' words, the greatness of the Jewish people had been usurped by foreigners. Rome had become Israel's master. To the Jewish people, Caesar and Rome were like vultures. They had stolen, temporarily stolen, Israel's rightful place as the central nation in God's economy. They had taken, Rome had taken what was not theirs to take. They had preyed upon Israel's weakness. Rome was a vulture, but not just a vulture. Rome had not just waited around like a vulture for the nations around her to waste away. No, Rome was an active, forceful, conquering nation. It was a dominating global power. Caesar's influence extended to all corners of the globe. His military prowess unmatched by anyone. Caesar ruled with an iron fist and clenched in his hand. Clenched in Caesar's hand was the emperor's scepter made of ivory. And on the top of that scepter stood an image of pure gold. It was the image of an eagle. An eagle stood at the tip of the emperor's scepter. And perhaps not surprisingly, that same Roman eagle would become the dominant image displayed on ancient Roman coins of Jesus' day. And not surprisingly, the Roman eagle would be the same image that would be shown on the very top of ancient Roman scutai or shields. Everywhere a Roman soldier went, the Jews would say, there go the eagles. The eagles have gathered. Rome was a vulture. Rome was an eagle. A great nemesis to Israel. And it isn't happenstance that time and again in the word of God, ancient Rome is referred to as a kind of prototype of the global ruling power of the beast. 
the Antichrist, referred to in Revelation. If you read Revelation 12, you'll learn about this new Roman ruler who will do to the Jewish people of the tribulation unspeakable things. Severe harassment, violence, even execution will await such people. The Antichrist and his global military machine will be relentless in his persecution of God's people at the time of the end. Wherever the body is, there the vultures will gather. Wherever there is found a Jew, for that matter, wherever there is found a believing Gentile who comes to faith in Christ after the rapture, there the eagles will assemble and unleash unspeakable atrocities. So Jesus says, run. To his Jewish countrymen who enter the tribulation, not having believed in Christ as Messiah, Jesus is sending them a message. 2,000 years old now. When you see these things taking place, know that I am your Messiah. I told you these things would happen. Now run. What a stark contrast to how this began in verse 20. The Pharisees asking, Jesus, tell us what will be the signs of the coming kingdom? Tell us what will be the military might of Messiah's coming? And Jesus says, oh, that won't be me. At least not first. That'll be Rome coming to get you. In that day, those of you who did not believe in me as Messiah, you'll need to run from an oppressive regime that will be far worse than Caesar's Rome. So don't wait. Don't let this fate befall you. Don't be like those who eat and who drink, who make money and live lavishly, supposing you have security in this life. Jesus says, when the end comes, none of those material riches you've accumulated in the house will matter a lick. When the end comes, destruction will be sudden and it will be swift. So let go of the things of this world. Trust Jesus as Messiah. Believe in him and you'll be delivered from the wrath to come. Let us be like the Thessalonians of whom Paul said in chapter 1 verse 9, you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, the true God, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a testimony. But sadly, many will enter this fateful final era of human history not having trusted in Jesus as Messiah. Luke 17 is for them. They will be the last generation on earth who have a chance to turn to Christ in faith. May they do just that. May they run and escape the unspeakable tribulation wrath to come. May God protect them and preserve them just as he promised he would. And may the day come quickly when Satan and those who follow him will be utterly destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. May the day come quickly when the devil's vultures who for centuries have preyed upon God's people, may the day come when the devil's vultures receive the recompense of their actions, just as it is foretold in Revelation 
chapter 19. I close with this reading from the apocalypse. Revelation 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. Behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Jesus on white horses. Jump down to 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And he cried with a loud voice. Notice the reference to birds. He cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, John writes, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against Jesus who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Satan and the vultures who prey on us daily will receive the recompense of their actions. They will receive the wrath of God. May we be those who believe in Christ and are delivered from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, difficult it is for us, Father, to comprehend this portion of your word. But we pray, Father, that your spirit would make it so very clear. One thing we know for sure, Lord, the end of the age will bring with it horrible wrath. Wrath upon those who do not know your Son. Wrath upon those, Lord, who have lived their life supposing that all they need is the security of the world. And while they say peace and safety, Lord, sudden destruction will come upon them. Father, we declare this warning as you've declared it to us through your Son. We herald it to our people here and to the world to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now before the wrath that is to come, that we might be saved from it And Father, for those that don't hear this message and have to endure this time of tribulation, God, would you open their eyes to the truth of your word? Would you make it manifest to them as we faithfully declare it? And may they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as they run and run for protection, God, would you, by your word, as you've promised, would you protect them In accordance with Revelation 12 and Zechariah 14, would you protect them, God, and keep them safe 
for surely Satan and his minions are like vultures. And they will receive, Lord, the recompense of their actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.